Life is difficult. Anyone agree with that statement? It, it tends to garner a widespread consensus. You know, life is, this is the opening line to Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. Life is difficult. And uh, I'll tell you, if there's one kind of Christianity, one type of brand of Christianity that I really struggle with a lot, it is that brand that just is the kind of happy clappy type Christianity that just pretends everything's okay and just put on the plastic smile and just forget about your problems and let's go to church and just be all, you know, happy plastic kind of Christians because it's just not real, is it? You know, there's something about, we kind of feel somehow that we're obligated just to be happy all the time and to be real fakey with each other. And uh, the reality is, you know, life is, this is not just me waking up on the wrong side of bed this morning. This is the reality, isn't it? I mean, I know this is true for many of you. I know there are many of you in this room this morning that are up against it financially today. This is just a reality in your life. There are some of you here that are really facing serious health problems uh, right now. Some of you that are facing uh, the death of loved ones or pain and hurting in the lives of those that are close to you. There are some of you this morning, I know you're struggling with really hectic schedules and you just feel like things are chaotic. Even as you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking about the next 10 things that you've got to do and what's waiting for you at work tomorrow. Some of you are struggling with your kids. I know this is true, isn't it? Life is just difficult. Can we just accept that? You know? Can we just own up to that this morning? And so it's kind of jarring a little bit, or at least I found it a little bit jarring, when you get to the second chapter of Hebrews that Sarah read out this morning. And toward the beginning of this chapter, there is this lofty, exalted description of what life is supposed to be like and what humanity is all about. If you've got a Bible, flick over to Hebrews 2 this morning. This is where we're going to be. And let me just read this to you and see how this compares with your life this morning. See if it sounds like you, okay? In uh, verse, at the end of verse 6 here. What are mere mortals that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Now, particularly that last part, you made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor, you put everything under their feet. How does that stack up next to your life this morning? Eh? How much glory do you feel? You've got mothers, you know, when you're wiping, when you're wiping baby sick off, your, uh, off, off something that your child has spewed on? How much glory is there? You know, it's kind of like, yeah, right. This is like the first ever Tui ad that's going on here. You know, how much honor do you feel like you've got really in your life when your boss is breathing down your neck, you know, and, and holding you to all of those deadlines? What about this last phrase? You put everything under their feet. I mean, it, it sounds great, doesn't it? But let's just be real. I mean, is this you? You feel like everything's under your feet this morning? Everything's under control, is it? All of your relationships... Auckland house prices under control, you know, come on. Is this real? Is this where we're at? This is not the world we live in. Life is tough. Most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't feel so much like glory. It kind of feels like chaos in our lives. Most of the time it doesn't feel like honor. It just feels like we're sort of spinning out of control and things are often getting on top of us. And rather than feeling like things are under our feet half the time, we feel like things are coming down and, and crushing us and oppressing us. And this is just tough. This is what it is to be human. But this is actually what the author of Hebrews intended. He kind of sets this up like a two-year so that we would have exactly that reaction and say, yeah, right, this is not us. And he knows that this is not the reality in our lives. And he even explains that in the next verse where he says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. That's, a, that's what we call understatement. All right? We do not see everything subject to them. That is exactly the reality that we're living with. And this is just tough. 
To see where the author goes next with this, you need to understand a little bit about the first century world and some of the prevailing uh, worldview that was going on, which is a Greek worldview. Because life is hard, and because human life is messy and often chaotic, and we don't know which way is up half the time, <clears throat> one of the prevailing worldviews of the time was that God has basically, because of that, left us to our own devices. And he has, because human nature and physical matter is inherently evil, so it goes, God has just chosen to remove himself completely from us. And he doesn't want anything to do with us because for him to get involved is going to just corrupt him and it's going to mess up his nature. So he just stands apart. He stands aloof from humanity and he just leaves us to wallow in our own chaos and for the world just to sort of increasingly deteriorate. This is the way that a lot of people think, that what is fitting for God is in fact to pull back from us. What is fitting for God is to remain indifferent to the human condition, to the human plight. And for him to get involved and for him to come down and be a part of what we are and who we are, this would be nothing but shame for God. Especially if he, if he were to relate to us as some kind of equal, like a brother. This would do nothing but invoke shame on God and his nature. Now in contrast to that, have a look here at verse 10 and verse 11 and see if you can get a sense of the contrast that the author is trying to paint. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers. You see, what you've got here, friends, is this picture of a God who knows that life is tough. He knows that it's difficult for you and me. He knows that we struggle to make ends meet and figure out our lives a lot of the time. But rather than remaining aloof and indifferent and detached from us like some abstract deity up in the cosmos, he has chosen to wade right in to the messiness of humanity. He's chosen to get his fingers dirty, so to speak. He's chosen to get involved in the stickiness and the muck and the mire of what it is to be human. And this is the God that we encounter in Jesus of Nazareth, a God who has come near to us, a God who has come down to this world in which we live and entered into the full experience of what it is to be human. This is what Jesus is. And I think today there is a bit of residue of this old Greek way of thinking when we approach who Jesus was. There is a myth that I call the God in a bod myth, all right? And this particular way of thinking about Jesus, and it's sort of a hangover from, from this era of Greek philosophy, which basically says that Jesus only took on the form of being human. He only took on a physical human nature because if God really is holy, we're a bit scared of allowing Jesus to be too human. We're a bit scared of allowing Jesus to take on full humanity. Yeah, he was human, but, we, but he was also divine. And we're very quick to rush back to the, the holiness, the divinity, the God element, and kind of play down the human nature. So we kind of picture Jesus. I don't know whether this is true for you, but it was for me for many years, this idea that Jesus, you know, if one day he had pulled back his shiny white tunic, there would have been a big G underneath, you know. That on the outside he was Jesus, yes, but underneath he was really God. It was kind of God wrapped in skin, basically, is the idea that we have of Jesus. Now, that is a prevailing and prevalent worldview today. It's how a lot of Christians, and maybe you, conceptualize Jesus, because we're a bit wary of allowing him to be too human. But listen to how the author would respond to this God and a bod myth in some of these verses that he gives us about the person of Jesus. Let's look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity 
so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And down to verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. What does that mean? For Jesus to be made like us in every way. Not just a few ways, not just the physical element, but in every single way. And what I want to do with you this morning is just invite you to ponder with me for a few minutes what it means for Jesus to be fully, fully, fully human. The humanness of Jesus. We know that he was human physically. That's not too much of a problem for us. We know that he had eyebrows, that he had facial hair, he might have had hairy legs. We don't know, he might might have been tone deaf. The girl down the road might have had a crush on him. He was very, very human. He had all the physical organs that human beings have, you and I. And he also experienced all the limitations of what it was to be human. He wasn't, during his earthly life, uh, omnipresent. He, He didn't just walk through walls. He didn't just teleport himself from one place to another. Jesus walked the dusty roads of Galilee hand in hand with others, with his brothers, who did exactly the same things. This is the physical element of Jesus. We know from the Gospels that he got tired on occasion. He got worn down. Those of you that are struggling this morning with just a hectic and weary schedule, Mark 7, you can read that account, when Jesus had to pull back from the crowds because he just got people overload. See, we picture Jesus as this kind of superhuman type person, don't we? Who would never you know, physically get depleted or run down, but in fact he did. There were times when Jesus had to put his arms up and say, I just need some time out. He got weary. Certainly he had compassion on people, but that doesn't mean that there were times when he was absolutely physically drained. He needed food and water and sustenance just as you and I do. And he had to manage his time. We see him clamoring around different priorities and people that want a piece of him and want some of his attention. And he can only do so much and only minister to so many people. There were many people in Palestine during the time that Jesus lived that were not healed by him, were not spoken to by him, were not ministered to by him because Jesus was a physical human being with only 24 hours in a day like every other one of us. And he was not only human physically, he was also human mentally. I saw a a comedian a few years back doing this uh, portrayal of what he thought Jesus would have been like as a toddler. Now, if you can imagine, I won't try and act it out for you this morning, but the basic idea is you've got Jesus in nappies walking around, but inside, in his mind, it's really God. Do you know what I mean? So God's kind of thinking, this is ridiculous, you know. I'm going to have to go through the motions of putting one step in front of the other, you know. Yeah, sure, I, I created these people, you know. I told them how to walk. I breathed life into their bones, and here I am having to do one step, one step. So it's kind of like the mind of God inside this little toddler, you know. Now, it's funny, and it was really humorous, but it actually paints a picture of Jesus that is quite contrary to what we find in the Gospels. Jesus didn't just know how to walk. He had to learn how to He didn't just know what seven times six was when he came out of the womb. He had to learn his times tables. Can you imagine that? Jesus had to go to school like everybody else and had to learn for himself. He didn't just know it all. He wasn't necessarily the brainiest kid in the class. He didn't necessarily have it all figured out from day one. He had to learn. One day Jesus probably looked in the, in the Isaiah scroll, because for him, education would have been very bound up with the learning of the law. And so as he poured through books like Isaiah and, and the Torah, he would have learned more about himself. He would have learned more about God. 
He would have started to learn about these prophecies of what he would actually end up being and doing. I wonder, actually, there's a, there's a particular prophecy in Isaiah 53 talking about the Messiah, and it says there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I wonder, did Jesus read that one day and realize it was talking about him? You know, did, he, did he read it and say, is this me? Is God basically saying, I'm going to be particularly average looking? You know? But Jesus wasn't necessarily Mr. Universe. In fact, he might have been bald. We don't know. He was just an average-looking guy. And all the portrayals through art and, and, and so on can often give us the skewed uh, picture of a very sort of mysterious, very serene and peaceful Jesus. But he was fully human physically. He was fully human mentally. He had to learn just as we did. He was human socially. He had to learn the skill of interacting with other people, of getting along with people. And he had close friends, just as we do. He had Peter and James and John and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you know, Lazarus, his kind of tight little group of people. And even within that, you know, we know that John was a particularly close friend to Jesus, someone that he really relied on and leaned heavily on. Jesus had friends. He related socially to people. Jesus didn't know, as a toddler, that he was God's son and Israel's Messiah. This wasn't some revelation that he necessarily carried around with him from day one. I think it's safe to imagine that Jesus had to learn about his own identity as Messiah through a process probably of prayer, of pouring through the scriptures. Jesus actually had to learn his Bible. He didn't just have it memorized. You know, those of you who struggle to find time to read the Bible, find time to study it, Jesus may have as well, if you can believe that. He had to learn the scriptures. He had to memorize scriptures. He had to come to an understanding of who his heavenly father was and who he was in relation to God's plan. There's a, there's a little verse here tucked away in chapter 2, which is quite surprising and snags a lot of people. In verse 10, the author says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. It kind of gives us the impression almost that Jesus was at some point less than perfect. How could he be perfect unless he had somehow been less than that? The word perfect is actually the word teleos, and it simply means to bring something to its end-appointed goal to bring something to the, to the destiny or the place prepared for it. And the idea here is that through being human, Jesus was brought into the full experience of what it was to be human, even to the point of suffering and dying. It wasn't really until he had experienced a human death that Jesus had really experienced what it was to be fully human. And at that point, in a, in a human sense, he was teleos. He had completed this experience of really becoming a, a man, really entering into the human experience. In Hebrews 5, we're told that Jesus had to learn obedience. Even though he was a son, he had to learn obedience. Jesus reached these decisions, just as you and I do, where he could decide to go this way or that way. He could decide to obey or not to obey. He could decide when someone insulted him whether to just insult them back or to return that insult with a kinder, softer word. And he genuinely had to make that choice. Now, we know every time he made the right choice, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus had to learn the discipline of obeying God, to learn what God's will is for him just as we do. He entered into the highs 
and the lows of human experience. There were times when he was incredibly joyful. Just as we go through great times of joy in our life, Jesus sometimes, you remember that time when his, some of his followers came back from this little missionary expedition and just gave him the good news about what had been happening and he just burst into this exuberant prayer to his heavenly father. Thank you, Lord, for what's going on. Just this spontaneous joy that comes out. And there are other times when we see Jesus just agonizing with real human gritty grief. You know, he lost his cousin in his early 30s, his cousin John, who baptized him. He knows what it is to lose those close to him. His friend Lazarus died, and often we neglect that because Jesus did raise him back to life, but not before he had arrived at the tomb of Lazarus. And you remember that profound verse, Jesus wept. You know, as tears rolled down his face, he knew what it was to stare death in the face, to stare the ugliest part of humanity in the eyes and come face to face with the full burden of being human and see those he loved suffer and die. He knew what it was to go through everything we go through. There were times when Jesus was frustrated with people, irritated by them. He told some people not to say anything about the fact that he was Messiah, and they went and babbled to everyone. And you can see this irritation growing in Jesus. There were times when he was incredibly anxious don't get this picture that Jesus just went to the cross as some serene, calm person, completely unworried about everything that was happening. Man, you just feast on the Garden of Gethsemane story where Jesus' sweat was converted to drops of blood. He was so anxious, so uneasy, and so disquieted by the thought of his impending death. He pleaded with his heavenly Father to take it away from him. This is not someone that was just some superhuman, above human suffering, didn't really care that he was going to die. He felt the full force of it, and he didn't want it. And he asked that God would take it away, and yet he came through that and submitted himself to the will of the Father. This is a man like you and I. Let me read you this quote from B.B. Warfield, who sums all of this up. He says, Not only do we read that he wept and wailed, sighed and groaned, but we read also of his angry glare, his annoyed speech, his chiding words, the outbreaking ebullition of his rage, of the agitation of his bearing when under strong feeling, the open exaltation of his joy, the unrest of his movements in the faces of anticipated evils, the loud cry which was wrung from him in the moment of his desolation. Nothing is lacking to make the impression strong that we have before us in Jesus, a human being like ourselves. He was fully human, just like us. Now, what does that mean for us? Why should we care and why did God intend it to be that way? Have a look at another verse here in Hebrews chapter 2 as the author goes on. In verse 17, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So here's the reality. Jesus did not just come to earth to die for your sins. That is absolutely true and absolutely central to what we believe as Christians. But it's not the only purpose of Jesus' incarnation, his becoming human. God knew that you and I need not only a saviour, we also need a brother. Don't we? We also need one who would come alongside us and help us. And this is what Jesus has achieved. He has become like us in every way in order that he can relate to us. Let me just flick you over a couple of chapters to Hebrews 4. There's a wonderful verse in here that, that sums this up in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us. That word empathy is the Greek word sympatheo. And it means literally to suffer with. 
This is the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. He's not only suffered for us, he has suffered with us. He has entered into every experience that we experience, and he now comes to us as one who knows what it is that we are going through and can minister to us out of that. When we're going through these times of, of difficult health problems and we're seeing death around us and suffering around us, we can draw back on the fact that Jesus too knows exactly what this is like. He's been there, he's seen it, and he's done it, and he's suffered and died in more horrific ways than we can ever imagine. And we can lean on the security of knowing that we have a Savior who has stood in our shoes and is now with us. He can empathize with us. He can relate to us. When our finances are really tight, and feels like, you know, we don't know where the next, um, how the next bill is going to be paid. You remember that verse, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's not just a nice theological statement. It means that Jesus, most of his life, spent it on the breadline, in virtual poverty. He was a peasant in Jewish culture. He struggled to make ends meet. His little disciples had a bag of petty cash, and that was about it. And he struggled through this. And he lived not the life of lavish luxury that many around him lived, but the life of, of, of a very lowly peasant man. And he relates to us as one who knows what it is to have very little and to struggle along from day to day through life. When we're let down by those around us, Jesus comes to us as one who knows what it is to be let down by close friends, to bring people into your inner circle only to find out that we can't trust them. And they're going to let us down and break our heart and take from us. And this is exactly what Jesus has gone through. Not only with Judas, but you remember with Peter, his close friend who, who recovered afterwards but disowned him three times removed himself completely from Jesus and left him when Jesus needed him most in absolute darkness and despair. That is the kind of saviour that we have in Jesus Christ. And he comes to us and can relate to us, not only as our saviour, but also as our brother. And ultimately, the purpose of Jesus relating to us is not simply that he could identify with our suffering, but that he would transform our experience of being human so that we would ultimately reflect the glory of God and we come full circle. This is verse 17. He tasted death for everyone in order that he might break the power of death. Ultimately, Jesus suffered and died in order to transform the suffering and death that we go through into a transition to new life so that one day what the author of Hebrews wrote at the beginning of chapter 2, that great destiny for humankind that we would have glory and honor and everything would be under our feet, ultimately that would in fact be a reality because we will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom and takes his rightful place. That's the future that he has established for us. So even though it's not a reality now, even though we look at those words now and we say, yeah, right, that is so untrue to my experience, we have the hope through Jesus becoming fully human that one day we will be like him. One day our lowly bodies will be restored and renewed to reflect the glorious body that he has. And this is how the saviour and the brother element of Jesus come together. He has ultimately come down to where we are in order to lift us up to be where he is, to make us fully human in the present and make us glorified with him in heaven in the future. And for the moment, in the midst of these sufferings and trials that we go through, he is one that can empathize with us. He is one that knows precisely what it is, and that should instill in us, friends, a deep, deep sense of peace, a deep, deep sense of comfort. We have a Savior who has been in our shoes. We have a Savior who has been there for us. We have a Savior who has gone to the cross for us and who knows exactly what our lives are like 
and can minister to us. We know in the midst of the darkest times that we go through that we are ultimately not alone, that we have one who stands with us, who can empathize with us, and that should speak a word of comfort and of hope to us in our everyday lives. I want to finish this morning by reading to you a poem. I'm not usually given to, uh, to poetry, but this one's a particularly good one that just reflects the depth of Jesus' humanity. It's written by Mark Strom, and it's a poem that we gave you out at Easter time in your bulletins. But I want to read it to you this morning. And as we uh, transition into a time of communion after this message, this for you, I hope, can become something of a devotion, something that allows you to get a sense of the solidarity that Christ has with you and the way in which he can come and transform your experiences, be they high or low in the midst of life. Because even though life is difficult, we know that we are not alone because Jesus has been there for us. Let me read it to you. It's called This God. This God could put on eyebrows and kneecaps, tear ducts and saliva glands. This God could be born under the tyrants Augustus and Herod. This God could accept the smells of shepherds and the extravagancies of political emissaries. This God could start a life vulnerable, a haunted child born into scandal. This God could grow up under foreign dominion and among terrorists and outcasts. This God could sit in the street playing marbles. This God could wear with pride the calloused, splintered hands of an honest workman, building the houses and fixing the furniture of half-castes, outcasts and bigots. This God could ask his cousin to baptize him along with the rest of the crowd. This God could make the best vintage Pinot Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon, even when his guests were too drunk to know the difference. This God could befriend a bloke in a tree with small man syndrome. This God could enjoy a prostitute washing his feet, giving her his full and undivided attention and ignoring the eye rolling of lawyers and theologians. This God could spend a whole night making a whip to crack over the backs of artists who rip off the poor. This God could wrap the greatest truths in the simplest stories and put a sting in the tail of every yarn. This God could let himself hang on a tree, nails tearing at his sinews. This God could invite women to be the first to know that he was back. This God could, could delay his own glorious homecoming long enough for a bite of breakfast on the beach and a yarn with an old mate to let him know there were no hard feelings and to pass on his mantle. This God could take his own story and give it the most surprising ending. This God, this God is worth knowing. This God could reach into the crevices of my soul to bring to life the longings I smother so pathetically and recklessly with shame and excuses. This God could raise me up to life with him. This God could give me every blessing he could give himself. This God could draw me out of my petty self-interest without a hint of a tut-tut, a frown, or a patronizing smile. This God could be more infuriating and fascinating and gobsmacking than any God I could ever make up. This God could love my obsessiveness and overlook my forgetfulness. This God could laugh and cry with me and come play with me. This God could make me his glory. This God could love me. This God could make my heart good. This God could trust me. This God could never be safe, but always be good. This God, this God is worth knowing. This God I want to know. This God I know in the face and spirit of Jesus. Let's pray.
Jesus, we stand in awe this morning of the reality that you did in fact become human. That you became like us, your brothers and sisters, in every way. And this is why we can pray to you now, not just as one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, but as one who stands beside us and comforts us and helps us by your Holy Spirit, who walks with us through the shadows and the darkness of this life when things are good and when things are bad. Father, we know that you've been through all of this. Jesus, we know that you've experienced everything that we have and will experience in this life. And we thank you that you now empathize deeply with us, that you suffer with us, and you ultimately focus us on not the present and not the darkness that we're presently going through, but the glorious future that we await with you. Lord, continue, we pray, to help us gain that eternal perspective. Continue to help us to draw on the strength that you so readily provide to us in the dark times that we go through. And continue to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, who has run this race for us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we are not only your children, but you are our brother. Help us to relate to you not only as saviour, but as brother. We thank you, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.